As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Welcome for the podcast series of the Talent Magnet Institute, which is about making leadership tangible. The whole idea and the whole concept is about the analogy of a conductor leading an orchestra. You are a conductor, which is why I'm very, very excited to pick your brain into this analogy, learn about what it takes to conduct and to lead an orchestra. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited for our, for our chat here. Thank you, Francois. So instead of me introducing you, I would love you telling our listeners who you are, what you do. And from there, we're going to develop the conversation, talk about the analogy. But please introduce yourself. My name is Francois Lopez Ferrer. You need the two different accents to pronounce that French and Spanish. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and I'm the assistant conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. I was born in Switzerland, but I grew up in the United States and have moved and worked all around between Europe, South America, and the United States for the last uh, 30 years of my life. And coming back to Cincinnati has been, grew up in Cincinnati since I was six and did my high school studies and everything here. And coming back here and having my first professional job in the United States as a conductor has been very, very interesting, especially observing the differences between how different continents work, how funding works with different orchestras in, in different countries, and how leading an orchestra, the psychology right. works from culture to culture. That's been something that's been particularly enlightening for me here. Right, right. Thank you very much for that introduction. And Francois, jumping directly into the subject, you already did build a perfect bridge leading an orchestra. Tell the audience, tell us what it takes to lead an orchestra. How do you play an orchestra? How do you generate beautiful music without playing an instrument? Well, there's so many different aspects. On a basic level, it's basically 50% psychology and 50% music. Mm -hmm. Because if it's 100% music and you don't know how to lead the musicians, then you're lost. Right. And if it's 100% psychology and you're not a musician, then you're also lost. There will not be great music then, right? So you need both. Of course. Of course. And there's different people, different types of conductors are better at one than the other. It's never going to be 50%, 50%. I mean, people have different personalities. But I think it's important to find the right balance between the two things because the human aspect yeah, is yeah. as important, if not sometimes more important than even the musical aspect. It depends on, on the group of people in front of you. How do you become a conductor? So how are you educated to become a conductor? And how much of it is the music piece and how much of it is the, the human piece indeed? So the process of becoming a conductor is, there's no one way. It's very, very different okay. for people. This was in my family. My father was a conductor. My brother uh, is a conductor. And I kind of grew up in it, but I found a very different way into it through electronic music composition and then classical composition. And then I took a choral conducting class and then I fell in love with it and then right went into conducting. So it wasn't like I was five years old and I was waving my stick and, and saying, okay. <laughs> in other cases, for example, there's certain cases of, of very experienced soloists, for example, that just start to conduct it. You know, a conductor gets sick and then they jump in or something like that. Or 
they're asked to do it because because of their reputation as a, as a famous soloist. Right, right. Or it, it just happens, you know, if you're lucky, there was one, I forgot his name, but there was one bass player in a famous London orchestra and Valery Gurgiev, famous Russian conductor, who's known for often having to miss rehearsals, missing his helicopter or something. Okay. He's, he's among the most busiest conductors in the world. And right. this player just would jump in and do rehearsals. And then the orchestra invited him to do that. Yeah. And then in my case, it was mainly self-initiative, as it is for many other people, especially of my generation. You, uh, well, in conservatory, when I was studying composition still in my undergraduate, I would right. put together groups of friends. I couldn't afford to pay them, but I would go and buy all the ingredients to make fantastic sandwiches. Yeah, <laughs> and oh, okay. The sandwiches after rehearsals, and we would kind of do it like that. And I would organize yeah. Yeah. concerts around Cincinnati at different churches and invite friends from the conservatory to play a soloist with me and so forth. It was really a, a self-initiative thing. And in the end, I probably had more experience than a lot of other conductors that, in different programs in the United States at the end of my bachelor, just by that self-initiative right. aspect. Okay. Than they even in doing their masters. Because of just doing that, putting it together and just inspiring people and trying to get experience. Right, right. Interesting, interesting. And that's part of the human aspect because yep. not everybody is lucky to start out with a big orchestra. I mean, that doesn't usually happen. Right. So you have to build little by little. And that's a big part of that human aspect. That's how you gain also experience in, in convincing people. Yeah. To convince somebody to play, you know, especially if it's, yeah, someone, a colleague at school, you know, to, to do more work than what they're already asked to do at school you know, that doesn't give you them credit in the end. That's right. something really really particular, really special. So, so you have to find that energy, that the motivation, you have to give them that motivation to do so. That's a very interesting aspect. And I think that translates very well into the business world as well, where obviously as a leader, there is an authority, there is a, a formal authority where you are, let's say, formally entitled to give direction. But at the same time, that has its limits because people still have free will and I think indeed the arts of leadership is going to be to find that right balance between being directive, but at the same time also listen to feedback and not only tell people exactly what to do, but employ their capability based on their motivation in a way that they perform. So I think that's indeed a very, very interesting component and analogy as well, which obviously applies for business as well as I would assume conducting an orchestra. And specifically, one thing that you said about finding their limits, yeah, if I understood correctly, I mean, that's incredibly relevant in the music world because people have different capabilities. Every right. orchestra it has its sound. It has its the specific repertoire that fits them very well, where you don't have to push them so much. Another repertoire where you have to push much more. Right. And you always have to know what the limit is, but and try to, to break that limit yeah. You never really know. There's no way of saying this person can sure. do this. Sure. Right? Or this person can just do this. Sure. So you have to find that balance between pushing across the limit, above and beyond, but then not breaking them. Because you right. know, if too much, then it also it creates a lack of motivation in the end. You can destroy that quickly. And exactly. if you don't push them enough, you know, that happens so much. I've seen that very often where you have sometimes conductors who are so nice and 
oh, this is wonderful. So good. Thank you. So thank you. Fantastic. You're wonderful. And they're liked for about two rehearsals or maybe one rehearsal. Yeah. And the concert, I mean, then it's done because they're not taken seriously because right. they don't motivate. You know, sure. they don't push sure. barriers. That's a very interesting parallel as well. Just had that conversation in the business side the other day about you need to take people out of a comfort zone yeah. to make them excel, to make them really advance. But it's a fine line because if you take them too far out of comfort zone and over challenge, it has a counterproductive impact actually. So Absolutely. that's kind of what you just talked about as well, where you need to find it out. And one question comes in, but to my mind, obviously being the assistant conductor here in, in Cincinnati, Louis Longre offers you the opportunity to get to know the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra much better than if you are a guest conductor. I think you have just been in Europe a few months ago, right? As a guest conductor for a few performances, if I remember correctly. Yeah, but well, pre-COVID, basically. Pre-COVID. How do you find that out? I mean, how do you deal with the fact of that an orchestra has its own sound? How do you find out where those capabilities is? Or can you talk a little bit about that? Because I assume you know that much better for the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra than for another one where you are a guest conductor and you basically fly in for what, two or three rehearsals, a performance, and that's it. How does that work? Well, yeah, certainly by reputation, but you can listen to recordings of any given orchestra. Okay. That's part of your preparation then, if you listen to their recordings? Sometimes, it depends on the orchestra. Certainly the yeah. more important orchestras, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But for example, Cincinnati has a very, generally speaking, it has an old like German tradition. Like Cincinnati is an old German city. We have a big part of that. It's everything is milked out, you know, every note. Yeah. All of the lemon is squeezed out of every note. Right, right. So here, for example, I remember the, one of the first pieces, if that was, it was the first piece that I was assisting for was the Strauss Alpine Symphony, which is incredibly difficult. And it's so much going on. And it was wonderful in the first rehearsal because that's their sound. You know, that's where everything needs to just shine. Yes. And then certain things that are a little bit more rhythmic, like Latin American music or even Stravinsky, it takes a little bit more time because, right. because it's more rhythmic and it's shorter. It's more articulated. Yeah. So those are things where you have to push a little bit more. Yeah. And in my experience, for example, in Spain, it's a little bit the opposite. Those kind of like long, those long Germanic works like Brahms, uh, Schumann, uh, certainly then, you know, Bruckner, Mahler and so forth, that needs time. You have to really get them to pronounce everything out. Right. But they're great with very rhythmic music. That's short, uh, knackish, you know. Yeah. Rhythmic, crispy music. Can you elaborate a little bit exactly what you mean when it's okay with the more rhythmic, you need to push a little bit more. How does that push look like? I mean, I've attended the rehearsal yesterday, which was a wonderful experience to see the interaction with the orchestra. But how does pushing look like? I don't know if the right word is pushing. It's just a little bit more insistent on certain things. Because if you have an orchestra that's used to seeing a quarter note, yeah. In music, you have a bar that can be in four quarter notes, that bum, bum, beam, bum. But then you put a dot over it. That can mean different things. I mean, short, but right. how short depends on the context. Right, so right. Bum, 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 or bum, 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 or da, 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 da. It depends on the kind of articulation over it. Right. And those kind of things, that's important to push because if you have an orchestra that sees that and says, okay, this means half the length, so bum, bum, beam, bum. Then you have to push for that to say, no, in this style, it must be much, much shorter. Yeah, and the pushing force why then is in the rehearsal where you 
kind of express yourselves the way you just did to me to make the musicians understand how you as a conductor want this to sound? Absolutely. Is that kind of what you then mean with pushing or interacting with them to really work through those section by section by section to really make sure that everyone gets on the same page and imagination on how it should sound? That's the rehearsal process. That yes. You ask to get what it is that you want. First of all, you show it with your hands. Yeah. This is the one thing about our profession that I think is particular to the conducting profession is that we have our hands to show things. Yes. And then what our hands, even in rehearsal, and then of course in the concert, that's all we have. Hopefully right. screaming to the orchestra. You don't want to sing during the, during the performance then. Right. Yes. So we have this, our technique and this mechanism to yeah. show different character entrances, color, to keep the tempo moving, to create the whole atmosphere. Yeah of the piece and the whole collective music-making atmosphere. But then when we don't get what we want with our hands, then we have to rehearse right. before we speak. And the yeah. idea is to speak as little as possible and as economically as possible, as efficiently as possible to get the result that we would like. Right, right. And that can express itself in many ways. You know, if you ask for something and an orchestra doesn't do it, then you have to ask yourself. And this is the part that can be very difficult, especially when you're young and you don't have experience, as much as experience. Because if an orchestra doesn't do what you ask, it could still be your fault. You have to ask yourself then, for example, a couple questions. Why they didn't do it? Did I not show it correctly? Is it my fault or is it their fault? Or did I ask for it in the right way? Yeah. Because if you say, I want this to be shorter. Yes. And then you start conducting like this, that means long, you know? If you really ask for something and you say, okay, ah, ah, yeah, ah, yeah. exaggerated, yeah, but... yeah, yeah and they don't play something short, then you still have to ask yourself, did you ask for it the right way? Or if they're just not motivated to do it, or it's just not in their culture of playing as well. Yeah. You know, German orchestras are going to be difficult with that as well. German sound is about expressing everything out. You know, yeah. French music is parfum, it's perfume. Yes. They're great at creating colors. Spanish Portuguese orchestras are much better with rhythmic music that doesn't have as long of a progressive harmony that where you have to build for over a long period of time. Those yeah. are things you really have to work with those kinds of orchestras. Yeah. You just made a very wonderful point for so I've never thought about yet in the analogy. And I, I go to the symphony for quite a while and really over time started to develop. But you just mentioned one thing which translates so well into business as well. You try hard as a leader, but your organization does not follow. The people don't do what you expect them to do. And I think you just emphasized the key of the accountability and the responsibility of the leader about you cannot just blame the people. You cannot just blame the organization or in your case, the musicians. What is it that you did contribute for that confusion or the, the point or the delivery not be what you have expected? That's one of those key components. Is it a lack of communication from your side, of the leader's side? Is it a lack of skill that you ask them to do something that they cannot do for whatever reason? So is it at the limit of the skill set? So that's a very, very, I think, interesting component in reflection for any leader about what do I as a leader contribute for the outcome to be not what it is supposed to be? And one thing that you said, but to go further into that, if you ask that person to do something they cannot do, but you're also asking as a leader, naturally, you're asking people to do things that you yourself necessarily Cannot can't do. do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very fine line. Yes. 
that's the difficult point because yes. you know, as a conductor, for example, you know, ideally you have training in piano, so that makes it easier for training in harmony and so forth, but then also a string instrument. But I mean, there was one conductor, Nello Santi, who just died recently. Amazing Italian conductor, Papa Santi, they used to call him. Wonderful. And he really played every instrument. I mean, he knew all yeah. the things. He would be correcting fingerings. Really? It was amazing. It was out of this world. But I mean, that's very rare. That's so the exception, like, right? So do you, have, you have to conduct a lot of musicians playing instruments that you have never played. And you, right. you don't master the instrument. You know how they work. Yes. You know how they work. But yeah. there's a big difference if you're a violinist or not, how you're going to be able to speak to a violin section. Yes. Yeah. Like, I'm not a violinist, so I've made an extra effort to learn about the instrument so that when I ask for something, if I'm asking for a certain color, then right. I know how to ask it. But then I also know what not to ask, like how far to push because yeah. it's not my place to do it. Then you have to find a different way of asking something. If I want a darker sound, for example, or if I want like a much softer and much lighter sound, let's say, I will say something like sul tasto, which means that they'll play the bow a little bit up on the instrument and it right. creates a much lighter sound. But sometimes it's even better just to say, look, it needs to be much softer and lighter and nothing more. And don't tell them where to play. And I mean, that's interesting. That themselves. You have to count on them to do that themselves. Or they might find a different way to do it because again, it also depends on the culture of that yeah. violin section in that orchestra that studied in that country. And that translates also very well to leadership because as a leader, if I just imagine that myself of the business I've led, I never performed all the functions of the organization that, that I'm leading. And the best I can contribute is to describe the desired outcome. But I cannot be specific enough to tell them exactly how to get there. So for example, I'm not an engineer. I'm depending on smart engineers. I can very well describe what we need, what our customers need, and what our value proposition, our product should perform. I cannot tell them how to engineer an ink, how they engineer a film or whatever that is to really do that. So that's a very, very important interaction where I think there needs to be good alignment on the outcome. So you as a conductor really try to express yourself the best way you can and how it should sound, but you're depending on their capability to produce the sound the way you want it as outcome. In a similar, I've been watching a lot of like architecture shows. Yeah. And it's really interesting for me because an architect must be very similar to being a conductor. I mean, it's a kind of, certainly a leader. Right. You have, to, you have to understand the mathematical possibilities. Mathematically, you have to understand what is possible to yes. realize your design. Yes. But then you're not building it yourself. You have to know the right. materials, I'm sure. You have to know the timeline, obviously, that you need to understand something about the economics of it, if it's going to profit from that or not, or, or how much. Right. You know, I don't know much about this. But yes. I mean, I, yeah. It's what I imagine. So, but you're basically trying to create something, especially more provocative architecture, more provocative designs, things that you have to count on so many people to realize it, to bring it to life. Yeah, yeah. That's super inspiring. One other topic, Francois, I would like to, to reflect with you a little bit. So we're also talking to um, composers in this uh, podcast series. And I do not want to downplay the role of a conductor, but if I take the risk of doing it a little bit, you perform other people's music. You perform yep. other people's vision. So if you prepare yourself, if you prepare the orchestra for a specific piece, how do you do that? Because, I mean, obviously you have the score. Every musician has the respective part that she and he knows exactly what 
their piece is that they have to contribute to the entire composition. But tell us a little bit more about what more does it take in preparation for you as a conductor in addition to understand the score in terms of who the conductor was, what the conductor visions was, and also a little bit talk about the room of your interpretation of how you envision to perform this piece. So that's a long, a long... I know it's a very loaded question, and there was a lot of questions in there, but let's start to, to take it layer by layer. Well, let's just say, okay, when I have a score, okay, yeah. first of all, you know who the composer is, you know when you find out, or if you don't know, I mean, you know, usually if it's a well-known composer, you know when they lived, in right. what epoch, in what part of history. So you analyze the music just strictly, just harmony. This is the goal. This is how we build the piece. Okay, great. But then you have to understand style, which is not necessarily written in the music, but you have right. to understand the style of that period, yeah. which changes drastically, even sometimes in the same composer. In the same, and I'll get back to that afterwards if you remind me about something that we're doing this week with, with Schubert, Unfinished Symphony. But, but you have to understand what period in history they lived, because that will influence tremendously your understanding of the piece then you can then communicate to the orchestra because during Mozart's times the instruments had different capabilities than we have today they had a different sound I mean they played non vibrato now we do now there's a question about doing performance practice or not if we want to make it sound like it sounded back then or we want it to sound more modern because if you do Mozart with eight basses you're going to have a problem because Mozart was written for much smaller right. orchestras, it's chamber orchestras. Yeah, in the yeah, yeah. So these are all considerations that come into play. And then, not just that, it's important to understand their friends, their contemporaries, their way of living, painting at the time, the political situation in their country at the time, how their music was financed, why did they compose that piece? By who, right? No, but it's important because that can also tell what the motivation for that piece was. Because if right. it's written for a specific person, then you should find out what the person to whom it was dedicated, what their yes. character was and what their motivations were. Because right. all of those things play into developing an interpretation. Yes. And that's what we're doing in the end. And this whole thing, honestly, I find it a little exaggerated because, yes, as a conductor, as a musician, our role is to bring to life what is written on the paper. But yeah. what is written on the paper is a skeleton in the end. I mean, there's so much that you have to imagine. And when the composer is not alive. So you cannot have a conversation to say, what exactly did you want to say or tell? Or right. what was, yeah, right. Then you have to guess. Even if you've read all of the style of the period and understand how the performance practice took place during that time and all those things, there's still so many unanswered questions. I mean, I can't tell you how many some of these basic questions that you know, I learned about for the first time in school and when I was younger or through my father that even my father would still ask, he was 78 when he passed away. I mean, he would still have those same questions. Tempo yes. relationships in Mozart, for example. Right, right. Between different movements. Or it was all questions that he was studying back with Hans Swarovski in Vienna in the 60s. Yes. There are questions that never have answers. And the point is, in the end, with your interpretation, you have to take a decision. And you have to be confident in that decision. Wow, that's, that's very powerful, Francois, because what I just extract from what you say is, I mean... The score is a very important piece, but it is not more than just a framework. There is a lot of space where you need to, first of all, think about, interpret, make assumptions, and then most importantly, again, that translates so well to leadership, take decisions. 
Because the analogy that I think I see, which inspired me a lot in my leadership work, and again, I work with the conductor and the orchestra analogy a lot in business, just to explain leadership and to explain what we're doing and why we're doing. I always see the score to be the vision, the mission, the strategy, the plan. So the kind of the overall plan that tells us what we should get accomplished. But it could be just an empty shell if it's not implemented, if assumptions are not made, if important decisions are not made, you know, and ultimately if there is not really a good cross-functional interaction with everything, with everyone, including the leadership of someone. And I mean, you just perfectly described that on that analogy, including taking decisions. And I think what I perceive always what must be the most important decision you just referred to it is the tempo, right? So a conductor in a performance, especially in a performance, the main thing that they influence above anything else is tempo. Is the tempo? It has to be. If you're not influencing the tempo, you're lost. You're not a conductor. As a drummer, I would say I play the drums in the orchestra. If we, if we want to annoy the conductor, I mean, there is quite some influence on the drummers in terms of the tempo. And the right. conductor will always say if he disagrees, but I mean, the tempo is one of the most important things, yes. Certainly, but that's the main thing that you influence. Yeah. And then, of course, character, the ambience, the energy, absolutely. The drive of the music, then building, how to build the sound and everything, and build the architecture of the piece. Those are all things that then you can you influence in a performance. But the main thing is tempo. Yeah. yeah. The basic yeah. thing that we're there for, in a yeah. sense, on the most basic level, because there's so much more, right? Right, but, right. No, sure. If you look at your role as a conductor, from a leadership perspective, what is it that you would say are the biggest challenges in leading an orchestra? To be perfectly honest, I think it's to maintain your sensibility and your openness. Because precisely that part about taking decisions. Yeah. There's a fine line between being confident and being arrogant. Oh, wow, yeah. And especially as a conductor, because especially if you're a young conductor, I've seen that if your career starts to take off and, you know, you get this experience with the orchestras that they're all looking up at you and they're not saying anything, right? You can very quickly just be drowned into your own world and your own thoughts. Which is dangerous, right? Which is, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Regardless, it should be a collaborative process. Some orchestras are more collaborative than others. Some orchestras are much more silent than others. You know, it depends on the orchestra. You have to read that. Right. It is a collaboration, you know, especially nowadays. I mean, we're no longer in the times of... I tend to think that conducting characters tend to follow political situations in the world. So now we're more democratic, much more democratic than we right. used to, right? Right. So if you think about like, if you think about like Furtwängler and these kind of Karajan. Karajan also, yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, those guys really were dictators of their orchestra. You know, they did fantastic things, but that was their way of leading. Right, right. And nowadays, it's definitely not that way. You can't go and speak to an orchestra like that. <laughs> much more democratic. Wonderful, so, yeah. I think it's a difficult thing to listen to what, not just what they're playing back at you. Yeah. And then molding it into your own interpretation, but remaining open and sensitive. Yeah. Reacting to the orchestra across your whole life. Yes. Oh, very interesting. One other thing, Francois, you mentioned before that I want to, to quickly talk about too is you mentioned the sound of an orchestra. And that's one of the pictures I always have in mind. If I go back to the analogy, I perceive the sound of the orchestra like the culture of an organization. And 
as a leader, you have a major impact to a culture of an organization, but you cannot define the culture. You, you cannot be the culture because the culture is so much more than a leader because it's the interaction of all the people and so on. So that means culture is a very important component that obviously every leader influences, but I think it also shows the limitations of leadership because culture is so much more than a leader. It's the accumulation of so many interactions. In that respect, can you talk a little bit more about what you've referred before about the sound of an orchestra and how much you as a conductor can influence it or probably have to live with it, including its limitations as well? And I mean, how would you describe what makes the sound of an orchestra? I think that depends on, on numerous factors. So what I spoke about before about in rehearsal, you know, using your hands and then using your words. Yeah. So there are some conductors that use their hands more and other conductors who use their, not hands, their body. The bodies, yes. Their eyebrow, everything that's communicated. Yeah. yeah. And then other conductors that speak more. And it tends to be that the conductors who use their hands more, their bodies more, tend to have more of an influence on the sound because they know the way to kind of create that. I mean, when we look at someone, we immediately feel, I mean, that happens in just the general, as we as the general population, in an orchestra, immediately when the conductor walks on stage for the first rehearsal, in about 10 seconds, you can kind of know how the concert's going to go. Really? Wow. At least they know. It's an early indicator, actually. If this person is a leader or not. Yes, okay. That's done in the first 10, 20, 30 yeah. seconds. Yeah. And that, just that part is already conducting technique in the sense. I mean, it's okay. your, the way that you... The physical present. presence, the body language, in addition to... Of course, it's physical, it's body, it's your spirit, it's yeah. who you are. I mean, yeah. when I see someone like Louis, for example, I mean, I just feel his culture. Yeah. The depth of knowledge that he has. Right. You feel that, it's in his eyes, it's in his body, it's in his way of communicating. Right. You just feel that immediately and that his willingness to share and that influences the sound. Right, right. right. I mean, this is kind of more simple comparison, but if you walked up to the statue of David, okay, in Florence, yeah. and you knocked on it and it turned out to be plastic, yeah. I mean, you would feel that from afar. Yeah, right? sure, sure. You feel that it's stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That changes the whole presence of it. It's a monument and you feel that energy coming from it, that history. Sure, that the sure. That's all part of being a leader. Yeah. I mean, even something as simple, I mean, I know, you know, in the business world, it's wear a suit, you know, <laughs> that's really important. Right. Right? I mean, that changes the whole perception. You can be really, really, unless you're, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the head of Facebook, yes, you're not going yeah. to a meeting with a hoodie, right? I mean, it's interesting. First of all, it's also changing and the regional differences. I remember, you know, moving to the United States nine and a half years ago, first time showing up in Florida for business in a suit, they made fun of me. <laughs> going to New York, you better wear a suit and a tie. Otherwise, it's no good. I mean, you just touched on so many important aspects in addition to the score, in addition to the, the job, in addition to the outcome that plays such an important role, whether a leader is accepted or not, sure. how much impact the leader makes just because of physical presence, because of body language, because of... And again, it's so hard to make it tangible, but about the energy that that person through different ways on body language and the way of speaking and how loud or not loud to speak. I mean, so many components, it's very complex actually, but that's influencing so much, obviously, correct? Absolutely. That's what I heard you saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all, of that. I mean, I know 
in myself, for example, my energy changes based on how well I know the music. And sometimes I've had experiences where I've had to jump in for a conductor two days before the first rehearsal. So of yeah. course I didn't spend weeks with the music or yeah. months yeah. to learn it, okay? Then my energy is different. It's more insecure. It's not going to be as decisive or incisive in, in trying to get what it is that I want from the orchestra. How do you overcome such a situation? Because I mean, I think every one of us who, who lead, I think we cannot claim that we are perfectly feeling secure all the time. And there, there are insecurities because of rapid changing situations, because of maybe a lack of knowledge, maybe a lack of understanding or lack of information and still the need of taking decisions. How do you overcome such insecure moments where it can be dangerous as a leader to show those insecurities, right? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think that's just a fine line between arrogance and confidence. Right, right. I really don't know. It depends on the given situation. Right, I mean, right. You know, especially if I'm frustrated with myself in a certain moment about whatever it may be. Yeah. I mean, it could even be something personal. Like, that's the thing about it. When you're a leader, your personal life and your professional life is, especially in the music world, which is very combined because once you leave yeah. the podium, you're studying at home. I would say it's not so different in the business in the business world either. I mean, I can sure, tell no, my I own agree, experience. We had, we had different, different situations in lives with very hard times because of a death in the family. I remember the situation with the death in the family. I was not in shape and I was not in order for a few days because my mind was somewhere else. You know, or I mean, it, it can be so... so I, I don't think that there is so big of a difference, actually, because, I mean, at the end, we're no machines. We're human beings with feelings as well. Absolutely. It's a talent to be able to separate that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, we have to have a lot of discipline sometimes, right? And uh, I think that's one of those, those uh, components of a leader that are very important to have a good level of discipline, that we cannot carry this to the outside all of the time, but at the same time, still it impacts. And I think we've all made personally that experience as well as with other people we could observe how much of impact it can make where it's very quickly getting to the point whether that leadership is then effective or maybe not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. I'll tell you one, just a personal example. I mean, I remember when my father passed away two years ago. That was a terrible, terrible, terrible time, of course. But actually, the one thing that made me feel better was getting back in front of the orchestra. Remember, I did a production of Giselle two weeks later with the, you know, so you had the ballet company, you had the orchestra and everything. And it like, and I had to just put my emotions to the side. Sure. And paradoxically that the whole thing just made me feel much, much, yeah, much better imagine. about it. I felt needed. Yeah. I felt that nerve comes back and yes. you just immediately, whatever happened in your personal life is just right. somehow not there until yeah, yeah. one o'clock when the rehearsal or two o'clock, whenever the rehearsal ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's something really special, especially in a performance. Yeah. You go in and you're a bit sad. You go through the emotion. That's another talent and it's an, an important quality to have as a conductor is that you have to go through the, the emotions across the whole work. Because if you have a, take an exaggerated example, a Mahler symphony, which is full, I mean, of ups and downs and everything you think, about <laughs> right. write the symphony and, and it's an expression of that. Yeah. So in bringing that to life, you have to traverse those emotions at the same time. Yeah, And therefore... You apply things from your personal life. There's lots of thoughts that come into your mind that creates different energies in your body that then is transited into the orchestra, you know? And you have to let that happen, but not yeah. let it overtake you. Because yeah. if you let it overtake you, then you also lose control of the musicians. Another fine balance, another fine line to keep in that respect, yeah. Oh, that's, 
that's super exciting. That's super interesting, Francois. I appreciate so much those insights to not just make me, but the audience understand, I mean, what it takes to lead an orchestra and conduct an orchestra. One topping towards the end I would like to touch on, we're living through unprecedented times of a pandemic and severe impacts to the arts, I mean, to the performing arts, to actually to all the arts forms, uh, not only concerts not taking place, but also museums being shut down and so on. Can you share a little bit your perspective in that respect on how the arts is doing through that and what it means to an orchestra and what motivates at this point of time to get up in the morning and, and, and keep on doing what you're doing and to get through these times? It's a difficult question to answer because living through it in the moment yeah. is particularly difficult. I'm extremely lucky to be in Cincinnati with this orchestra, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, with this administration, what they've managed to do to keep the orchestra playing and keep the orchestra relevant right. has been a blessing, okay? Because that's not happening around. It's really exceptional what we're doing here, in, not just in the United States, but in the, in the whole world. Right. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And I mean, I'm sorry for so many colleagues who are not working and don't know where their next future is going to look like. Yeah, I mean, just on an economic level, where their next paycheck is going to come from or if they're going to be able to do music. I mean, I don't know. It pains me. I'm just so happy, so grateful to have this position now and going through this process together with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Right. Maintaining our relevance in the community because that's really, we're recording concerts. We'll start to play with the public in the theater soon, but I think it'll be probably a while before we're able to fill up Music Hall again. But, you know, it begs the question of what is an essential business? And you can answer that question better than I can on a purely economic level. What is an essential business? What keep, because a restaurant is technically not an essential business, you know, for example, but restaurants are staying open and all across the world and then they're closing down theaters. Right. And I, mean, I can't really comment on rock concerts because that's a whole different level. I mean, you have people dancing, you have people moving around. Yeah, yeah. A theater, I just don't see... And again, I'm not a scientist, so I really don't want to sound like I'm making judgments about how this is all being handled. You know, these are things that are, it's complicated because when you get a group of people together, a lot can happen, right? Yeah. But I just find it difficult to imagine that if you filled up a hall at 50% capacity, that where everybody's wearing their mask and sitting in their spots with the right distance between their groups and others, that it would create havoc in the end with the crisis. I mean, this is something... You know, people go to Kroger's. I mean, you know, that's where I'm probably most afraid. I'm more afraid at Kroger's than I am going to Music Hall because yeah. we have many protocols in place. And yes. Kroger's, you know, yeah. touching things that, that yeah. everybody's touching all day. So, I mean, uh, to our supermarket here. But yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think it's important for all institutions to do whatever it is that they can to stay relevant, to stay in touch with their communities. That's what we're doing here. Yeah. Because if you just close completely, especially in today's world, right? Because there's so much desire and initiative to create something new and you have some right. always new coming up and then disappearing new coming up and then there's yeah. a few things that stay right especially yeah, yeah. in Cincinnati which is a more traditional society yeah, yeah, that we yeah. like what we know right yeah, yeah so you have a lot of like new you know interesting provocative restaurants that appear and then right. shut down after two years yeah, that happens yeah. often here so especially as a traditional big institution or not or also small the important thing is if you're existing in your community, you need to maintain that contact with your community and yeah. whatever way you can. 
And Francois, I apologize to throw such a difficult question at you because, I mean, you're right, you made a good point. We're still in the middle of that. And right. it's too early to conclude or to reflect because we don't know yet exactly when and where the, end, the light at the end of the tunnel looks like. I just asked that question out of curiosity because of what we experience right now of maybe other shutdowns to come what it means economically. And uh, I enjoyed very much what you've just said in terms of staying relevant. And you're right, there are very different perspectives about economically what's an essential business or not. I think without any doubt, us humans not being machines, but culture, I think is a very important component who we are and, you know, for our mental health as well and for our, our soul. And Absolutely. I think that's kind of the the difficult part probably through such kind of a pandemic too, which is stressing a lot of people economically. And at the same time, we don't have those escapes for a rock concert or the silence diving into a classical concert and things like this. So, um, But I will say point, one thing. Yes. If I can just add to that. You know, Please. one thing that I'm very confident about and is, you know, I have a subscription to the Digital Concert Hall, the Lynn Philharmonic. I watch that yeah. and I watch the CSO live streams. I watch that at home. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I enjoy doing that. It gives a different perspective. That's great. Right. However, that cannot and should not ever replace live performances. And if Absolutely, we ever get to a point yes. that that's the case, yeah. if we ever get to the point where we have like 3D stuff at home, you know, yeah. 3D, 4D stuff at home where you can put on your goggles and you're in the concert <laughs> right. hall and moving around and then, right. and then people stop going to concerts, yeah. that's yeah. really bad. Because yeah. you cannot yeah. replace the live elements. I mean, now we have everything delivered at home. Even our groceries, you know, you have Amazon Prime. Prime now, Prime sooner, like you have all this kind of stuff that's just immediate, right? Yes. We don't even have to shop for clothes anymore at the store. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no that touching and trying things on as much right, as it right. be. We see down, you know, here so many stores are closing, right? But theaters cannot close. I mean, that just can't be our future. If not, we're lost as human beings. I mean, I fully agree. I, th I think there are opportunities indeed that our business models, I mean, the business model of a symphony orchestra and so on will be digital enhanced. But sure. at and the same time, I, I fully agree. And I hope that some of that will not go away because I think this offers opportunities to increase the relevance because barriers of accessibility are taken away off. And, you know, to enjoy it maybe at different places, the digital streaming last Saturday of the symphony I enjoyed while making a barbecue. So that's probably not the the place where you should enjoy a classical concert. No, but it was very nice. That's not true. It can be. Absolutely. That's that's, or maybe perfect. it should be. I, I don't know, but I fully agree. And I've just realized that yesterday with the rehearsal at, at Music Hall, I mean, nothing takes that experience away. And I think it's going to be not black or, black or white. It's going to be either or. It's important Hopefully. to give people options absolutely, in everything. Yeah. How yeah. to listen, you know, where to listen. Absolutely. I just absolutely, don't think yeah. that live concerts yeah. could go away. Yeah. Be it pop music, classical music, whatever. I mean, that. That's not something that should ever disappear. Yeah. No, thank you so much for sharing those thoughts as well. And like I said, I, I know it was a, not an easy question there, but it's certainly one that is in, on top of a lot of people's minds right now, not only because they are in the arts, but also arts lovers like me who are terribly missing those live performances. And I think the key word that you have mentioned is one that I want to repeat is relevance. And I think the relevance of the arts, of the well-being of humans is undisputed. And what I especially like about the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra is to really seek and share inspiration and to be relevant. And in that respect, Francois, thank you so much for this very inspiring conversation. I'm sure that 
with some of your insights on what it takes to lead and conduct an orchestra, you increased some relevance into the business community to help to understand that analogy. And I hope that a lot of our listeners today not only have been to Music Hall here in Cincinnati or at other places, but hopefully will be back soon and maybe take a different look at a conductor leading an orchestra and therefore experience that leadership can be tangible and in addition to that, very inspiring. So thank you so much for your time. I hope to have you back. There are so many more questions I have on my list that we did not get to, but probably we should not go too far over time for the first conversation, but make it the second or third one. So thank you so much. Anytime. And I just want to say that we miss you as a public. The hall is empty without the applauses at the end and the sounds of people listening, you know, the silence of people listening. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. We miss you tremendously and we're looking forward to bringing you all back as soon as possible when it's safe to do so. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.